Hello, my name is Jane Dorman, and I'm the Director of Honoring Your Wishes at Iowa City Hospice. I will be presenting today with Dr. Merce Bernklu, who's the Director of the Aging Program and an Associate Professor at the UI School of Social Work. We are presenting today on advanced care planning and family issues in dementia. It's a pleasure to have you join us. We have no disclaimers to report today. Our objectives are that we will define advanced care planning, otherwise known as ACP, advanced directives, and the POLST paradigm. We will compare and contrast ACP, AD, or advanced directives, and POLST for families of persons with dementia. We will present ACP-related tools that providers can use with individuals and families affected by dementia. First, I would like to talk about what advanced care planning is. It really is a process to reflect upon one's values, beliefs, and goals for future healthcare preferences relevant to a person's stage of illness. Ideally, every healthy adult will have a conversation and will create an advanced directive in the event they were to have a sudden illness or injury, they would be able to select someone who could make healthcare decisions on their behalf and communicate their preferences. As we age, as our values change, as perhaps we receive a diagnosis and towards the end of life, the hope is that advanced care planning discussions take place with people in our circle of support, with people who are important to us, as well as with our healthcare providers. In this process, an advanced care plan is created, such as an advanced directive that reflects a person's healthcare preferences. It's a guide for a healthcare agent if they need to stand in that role, and it's also a guide for healthcare providers to know what the person would want if they were unable to communicate their wishes. It's an empowering process, and the hope is that a well prepared healthcare agent and alternate healthcare agents are selected and engaged in the process. I encourage people to carefully reflect upon who they would like to select as a healthcare agent. And some of the things that I ask people to consider is who do they trust? Who do they feel comfortable talking to? Who can they share their values and beliefs with? And then I ask them to also think about, would that person be willing to carry out their wishes if they were in that role? Even if they didn't agree with them, would they be willing to take on that responsibility and fulfill that role? Also, is that person able to deal with sometimes stressful situations? It can be a difficult role to be in, and I encourage people to think about who would be able to do that in sometimes very delicate and difficult um, times of crisis. And then, you know, are they willing to fulfill that role? Um, that is an important question to ask and to embrace by saying, yes, I would be honored, for example, to be your healthcare agent. Another step in that process is that when um, a person writes an advanced directive, ideally, selects a healthcare agent and reviews their preferences, then the wishes are also communicated to healthcare providers and healthcare systems. Now, healthcare providers can be an integral part of that advanced care planning process. 
and they should be along the journey in one's life. Often you'll hear about the legal forms, durable power of attorney for healthcare, or advanced directive and living wills. Durable power of attorney for healthcare is a person appointed to make healthcare decisions if a patient becomes unable to communicate due to illness or injury and healthcare providers have determined that the patient is unable to make their own healthcare decisions. Throughout this presentation, we'll be using the term healthcare agent or proxy or surrogate as well as durable power of attorney. A living will is an advanced medical directive that specifies what types of medical treatment are desired. A living will can be very specific or very general I would say that it depends on the state in which you live and you want to look at the legal definition. Often it is put in place when a person has an incurable or irreversible illness, disease, or condition is at the very end of life. When we talk about advanced care planning, I think about some very specific core principles that you see listed here on the slide. Respecting choices often talks about the process of understanding, reflection, and discussion. And these are all interwoven throughout these core principles. For example, informed consent. How do we make sure that people are making wise decisions based upon the information that they've been given? Uh, do they have adequate information to make healthcare choices? Um, what information should be shared with healthcare providers? Um, how do we pace that information in a way that is culturally sensitive to the person and their family or their circle of support? What is the process for communication? How does that take place? Uh, we encourage conversation with healthcare providers and whoever um, the person would like to have involved. And then through that process, they decide what is important to them, but also recognizing that most people make decisions within the context of relationships and consulting with a variety of people. And that's what I'm referring to as shared decision-making. So through these processes, um, people will make choices about their healthcare preferences and create a, a plan of care. And the goal is for them to maintain control of their choices and to give them options on an ongoing basis. Through this process, we can honor people's healthcare preferences. And I think that that is a primary responsibility that we have as healthcare providers. My hope for people is that people are not over-treated or under-treated, that they receive the type of care that they want at the right time, that people receive care in their preferred location wherever that may be, at home, a home-like environment, or in the hospital. Another benefit of advanced care planning is that it reduces moral distress for professional caregivers. I, you may have had various experiences where you've experienced moral distress. I have heard many, many stories of people saying, oh my goodness, we did so much treatment. Um, I don't know if that's what the person would have wanted, but we weren't able to talk about that. And a goal is to reduce the moral distress 
for professional caregivers, and the research shows that that does happen through advanced care planning. Another benefit of advanced care planning is reducing this distress of not knowing if a family member or a friend has made the right decision on behalf of someone who wasn't able to communicate. We never want anyone to say, oh, if only I had had the conversation with them. If only I had known what they would have wanted. This happens all too often, and we want to prevent this as much as possible. Another benefit to this process is recognizing that um, when people don't have the conversation, it can really uh, complicate the grief of the family or a healthcare agent who is in that role uh, because they're struggling with what had happened and the decisions that they had made on behalf of that person. What are some of the challenges and barriers to advanced care planning? I've had many families say that they don't need to have a discussion. They know what their family members um, or friends or loved ones want. And I say, well, how do you know? Uh, a conversation can be a very beneficial way to ensure that you're aware of a person's healthcare preferences. I've also had people say that they have their documents in place and they are adequate. Um, so a question I follow up with is, well, when did you last review them? And do you know where they are? And this would be an opportunity for us to make sure that everything is current. A significant challenge in the healthcare community right now is how to schedule adequate time to offer advanced care planning discussions. I realize that this is a real barrier and a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to help ensure that people's healthcare preferences are honored and can save time later on down the road. Because it is a process, it's not just one conversation. It is can or can be challenging to schedule additional follow-up appointments, but it is so important to the process. There are various tools that are available to people to initiate conversations about advanced care planning. One that I would like to highlight is a three-minute video uh, on the National Healthcare Decisions Day website that talks about the benefits of advanced care planning. When we're talking about families affected by dementia, as well as individuals affected by dementia, I think it's very critical to think about what information to provide to contribute to informed decision-making. That is the goal, and we need to look at how people process information, what might be most beneficial to them, trying to offer options for them in terms of where they are, in terms of accepting the disease, what they want to learn, um, what can be helpful to them at this time. I also think it's important to recognize the importance of providing information for the specific type of dementia that has been diagnosed and what that could mean as the family and the individual begin to plan um, for this disease progression. The FAST scale is one example. And then I also think it's important to think about um, treatment options for this individual and their family. What are the possibilities? What are the ramifications of those? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the burdens? 
And then if the person also has additional diagnoses, what does that mean in the context of this new diagnosis with dementia? I have found the FAST scale to be very informative for families and very helpful in terms of planning. When I have worked with some families at the very end of life, they have said to me, oh, I wish I would have had this earlier. This makes sense. Or I've gone through this. It actually can be a great way to begin to hear people's stories about what they're experiencing and what the person that they may be taking care of, what are some of their behaviors and, and things that they need help with. In terms of selecting a healthcare directive to help guide the plan of care, one option is the Honoring Your Wishes healthcare directive uh, that is available online. And there are many, many others. Uh, this specific document is written at the ninth grade reading level and is available for people in Iowa. It's a legal document in the state of Iowa. And it has a lot of nice questions um, to facilitate discussion and to help create person-centered care for this individual. Other information that I think may be important is talking about CPR, feeding tubes, breathing, uh, written materials that are available at, and that are written at a sixth grade level are on the Respecting Choices website and could be ordered from there. And you may have a variety of tools uh, that you use uh, to educate people as well. Again, I think it's important to think about what the family would like in terms of information and how they could best process the information that um, you would like them to know. I highlight this study briefly on health literacy as a factor in end-of-life care preferences because it talks about 80 African Americans and 64 white or Asian people um, who went through an interview process and who were given health care options after they were presented with information on advanced dementia. After they were then presented on information through a video, there were no significant differences in the distribution of preferences by race or health literacy. And in the first scenario, um, health literacy was an independent factor. We always have to gauge what a person would like to know, but I wanted you to be aware of the video because it's a two-minute clip that shows a woman with advanced dementia and her daughter is caring for her. And this might be something that one of the people that you're serving may want to familiarize themselves with as they participate in advanced care planning. I'd like to introduce you to John. John is 60 years old, and he's had difficulty remembering things at work. His coworkers have noticed that he's not followed through on some of his work responsibilities over the past several months. They contacted John's wife, Maria, who shared that she's noticed that John has become more agitated and seems to not be able to follow through with simple tasks on occasion. They schedule an appointment for John to be seen by his healthcare provider. He goes and after sharing his symptoms, he's given a variety of tests that are scheduled and after a series of weeks and a month or two, he is then diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. 
After information has been shared, there, the next step would be to talk about how to create a plan of care. And I think that some of the important questions to think about to present to John and Maria and whoever else they would like to have at various meetings are questions like the ones that are listed. What is important to you right now? What gives your life meaning? What cultural, spiritual, and personal values are important for you to consider at this time in terms of planning? And what fears or concerns do you have? This is a very important question that healthcare providers can assist with. And then also, what other people do they want to talk to? With whom would they like to uh, consult about this diagnosis? And who could provide assistance for them along this new journey? Perhaps a financial advisor, spiritual advisor, family, friends, etc. I think it's advantageous to make referrals to local support systems, for example, the Alzheimer's Association or a caregiver support group. They may not be interested in this at this time, but perhaps they will be later. I also think it's a good idea to explore formal and informal supports in the community, and perhaps to elicit the assistance of a care manager or a social worker. Now again, all of this is going to depend upon your clinical judgment in presenting this information. Perhaps they're not ready to hear this much information. I have worked with people on occasion though who are planners and they like to take care of everything and that gives them peace of mind. Uh, so the example of home health agencies and adult day centers, assisted living, etc., um, that might be something that they wanna do on their own or with their spouse or partner or a family or friend. So ideally, at this point in the process, my hope would be that conversations have taken place um, with the patient, with John. Healthcare providers, family, and friends have talked about the diagnosis and what it means. Healthcare preferences have been identified by John, or John and Maria. John has selected Maria as his healthcare agent, and she understands what his wishes are. He has put his preferences in writing in a legal document and has shared that information with his healthcare team. When this process takes place, my experience has been that family members often say, oh, I would like to create an advanced care plan or an advanced directive as well, which I think is very beneficial. I also would recommend that family members or friends caring for the person affected by dementia create a plan in case they are not able to, to provide care for this person. I have heard of many scenarios and have, have seen them as well where all of a sudden a caregiver becomes critically ill and is not able to care for that person affected by dementia and there's no plan in place and we want to prevent that if possible. The American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry supports advanced care planning and states that it extends the patient's autonomous decision-making at this time. And 
Just wanted to share that with you. It's important to recognize that advanced care planning is a process and it's an ongoing assessment of what the person understands, where they are in the disease progression, what and how much information should be shared, an ongoing evaluation of their goals of care, where they are, and as a piece of that, it's so critical to think about the caregiver as well. How is their physical health? What is their emotional health? And what else is happening in the family? Are there other children that need to be attended to? Are there other dynamics in the family system that affect the care of a person affected by dementia? Let's go back to John. A year has passed. John has stopped working due to his short-term memory loss and is at home during the day. Maria continues to work full-time. A coworker of John's takes John out to eat once a week, and the neighbors have been asked to look after John and contact Maria if they have concerns. We're going to continue on with this advanced care planning presentation and family issues for uh, persons with dementia. So let's continue with John and Maria's story. At this point, his condition would be considered mild Alzheimer's if we use that FAST tool to stage the Alzheimer's disease progression. He enjoys participating in activities. It's important to remember that even with dementia, people can enjoy life, and um, it's a matter of finding a good match of activities for people based on their functional abilities. And although he enjoys participating in these activities, he's not able to really plan activities anymore. That's part of the disease taking hold. Uh, if we look at John's circle of care or support system, um, it includes his family. Uh, his wife, Maria, they have a son, and whoever else John and Maria consider as their family. That's who health providers should accept as the family. And then their friends. Uh, the neighbors have been helpful in this situation, kind of keeping an eye on John before. And places of worship can have support for members and also often services that are available for members or non-members. And then the formal service providers that Jane had talked about a little bit earlier. So we want to start taking stock of, of these informal and formal resources that are available because the family is going to be facing many new concerns as the disease progresses. Uh, utmost, we're considering John's health and also his happiness. We might think of that as John's quality of care and then his quality of life. We're also concerned about his main caregiver's health and her happiness. People are considering options that may be available depending on where they live as John's disease progresses. So what kind of resources are available for transportation, for formal and informal support, for living arrangements? There are going to be um, serious financial implications with as the disease progresses. And part of those financial implications may be related to the services we just talked about. Um, providing support, transportation, maybe some changes in living arrangements or some remodeling that might need to be done to keep the home safe for John. 
um, the importance of referrals to do the people in John's life know about different resources and do they know how to get connected with those resources? And Jane had mentioned earlier about a case manager or a social worker as uh, key people in the community who can help people understand what their options are. And then there's also the whole concern about orchestrating all of this. It's dealing with many different systems, many new systems, and it takes a lot of effort and time and energy to learn these systems and then to orchestrate all this. Um, the diagnosis of dementia and as the disease progresses can have some pretty serious interpersonal consequences for the family um, affected by dementia. And some of the dynamics that we see are the repercussions of severe grief and a severe sense of loss. Uh, what people thought their life was going to be like in their retirement or what they thought, what kind of things they were planning on doing or how they were planning on spending their time. They're realizing it's not happening. The relationship they had with, in this case, John is going to be changing. The, his ability to participate in a relationship is going to be very different. Lots of feelings of, of grief and loss. And then as the disease progresses and John needs more assistance, there's the role changes. And so Maria will be not only the spouse, but also taking on more responsibilities for his care. It will change the role expectations of their son and other people who've had relationships with John. Their identity to John begins to change. In some cases, it expands. They continue the kind of relationship they had, and now they add another role. In other cases, there's a, a pretty dramatic role change. And part of this role change can be guilt, um, that people, especially closest to John, may be wondering, are they doing enough? What else could they be doing to be helping him? Um, they might have some regret over things they didn't do earlier in life. You know, we should have taken that vacation, whatever it might be. And so being cognizant of the fact that many families are dealing with ongoing grief and loss issues, ongoing guilt issues will be important. The family and John then will have to do some extra work when it comes time to negotiating the middle stages of dementia. There's a lot of ambiguity in these stages. And so there'll be at some point a trade-off between who makes what decisions and who actually does certain activities. So at what point is John no longer able to drive a car safely? At what point is he no longer able to use the stove unsupervised? Things like that. And a lot of those uh, changes happen in the middle stages and can be um, challenging for the individual with dementia as well as the family. There's a lot of changes in how planning is done and the kinds of things that a system will have to plan for. And by that, I mean a family system. And on top of that, there's a lot of unknowns. We really don't know how quickly the disease will progress. We really don't know if John's going to get other diagnoses or if he has other conditions, whether or not they're going to advance and at what pace. And then we also don't know about the health of the other people in the system. So there's a lot of moving parts when we are talking about a family system and dementia. There's challenges in communication. 
Um, when you as a healthcare provider work with families affected by dementia, you are seeing a system that's been in place for decades, generally speaking. And so some of the ways that they communicated effectively in the past are going to really help them now. And some of the things they stumbled over in the past may rear their heads again, and there may be some problems. So on top of all of the family history, now we've got new things that have to be talked about. And for some families, they they really haven't considered how do we address the issue of dementia? How do we address the issue of advanced care planning? And so helping people with language and kind of sorting through their feelings can be very important. Uh, there's a lot to be said for helping families in reframing hope um, and what hope could mean in their life now. And then also in terms of finding meaning in these circumstances. And you're going to have to judge at what point the family's ready for those kind of conversations. But I hope that you'll be willing to engage in those conversations when you sense that um, they are open to reframing what hope might look like. The, the other thing that families are facing is just constantly having to adjust to readjustments. And right when things seem pretty stable, they've got their informal support set up, they understand what John's capacity is, you know, then things change. So we're asking, this disease asks a lot of families. And it also uproots their ideas of what they thought their future was going to look like. And that kind of uprooting takes some time to get used to. And it may also be affecting these conversations about advanced care planning as people get resettled. It's important that health providers ask the caregivers how they're doing and then that they are prepared to listen to how the caregivers are holding up under these challenges. Let's continue with our case study. The diseases progress to the point where John requires help now in getting dressed and bathing and using the toilet. It's not safe for him to remain at home alone. While his wife's at work, John attends an adult day center and enjoys the hot noon meal and some social interaction. Their son stops by on weekends, and this allows Maria time to run errands and to rest. One Saturday afternoon, John falls down the basement stairs, and his son calls 911. Uh, the ER staff ask if John has an advanced directive, and neither John nor his son know where it is. Um, they attempt to contact Maria, who happens to be at the mall, but her cell phone battery is dead, and after three hours in the emergency room, John is released. Nothing is broken after all. Maria and John, to the extent that he's able, and their son have a frank discussion about John's wishes, uh, reminding the son that he agreed to be the alternate health care agent and reviewing what that role might be, and then also clarifying where the health care directive is located. And the son gets a copy. It's not uncommon that there's a couple trial and errors of having to actually be confronted with asking, being asked about where is the advanced directive or do you have an advanced directive, and then people realize, oh, I, I need to make sure that this goes from the back burner to the front burner in terms of being able to access it and understand it. Um, over time, John's dementia progresses to the point where he needs more help than Maria and their circle of support can provide at home, especially in light of Maria's worsening arthritis and her asthma. So John is admitted to a nursing home. 
Anne Maria visits often. After reviewing John's chart, the medical director of the nursing home suggests that she and Maria have a discussion about pulsed. Maria doesn't think John needs a pulsed because he has an advanced directive, but Maria agrees to meet with the medical director. And so now we're going to turn our attention to talking about the advanced care planning process and the last stages of dementia and a tool uh, that's related to the pulsed paradigm. So POST stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. This is a paradigm that started in Oregon a couple decades ago, and it's been adopted by many other states. Right here in Iowa, um, we have a version called iPOST. So it's part of the POST paradigm, but we have a different name. It stands for Physician Orders for Scope of Treatment, and it was enacted by the state legislature in the year 2012. Um, Pulse is intended for people with a chronic, critical medical condition, and these are people who have frequent contact with healthcare providers and who have a life-limiting illness, and it's also appropriate for the very frail. The Pulse form is put on a bright colored paper, and each state has its own color that it's claimed, so that all the Pulse forms look the same. And the idea is that this post form will accompany the patient as the patient transfers to different settings. And this has been one of the, the big benefits of the post paradigm. In order for the post system to work, the system has to change, the whole system. So people, all the healthcare providers who encounter a person with pulse need to know to ask about the post form and need to understand how that would work. And that includes your emergency personnel, your ambulance personnel, and people in different healthcare settings. This just briefly shows which states already have endorsed a post paradigm program and which ones are in the process of developing them. From the post website, uh, we get this information that it's a medical order indicating a patient's wishes regarding treatments that are commonly used in a crisis. Um, without a post form, paramedics and EMTs are required to provide every possible medical treatment to sustain life. Um, the post website also goes on to say that post is helpful in guiding treatment after the initial emergency. These brightly colored forms provide a way to tell physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals what types of treatments the person wants. Um, it is important that post orders show what treatments are wanted now. Um, for a little bit more information about post in action in Oregon, we recommend that you watch this YouTube video. It'll fill in um, some of the information that we're not going to take time to go over right now. Here in Iowa, the Iowa Department of Public Health website has a lot of information about our iPost. The form itself um, varies a little bit from the Oregon Post form. There is a question about whether or not attempted CPR is a preference of the person, if the person's found with no pulse and not breathing. And then there's the opportunity for people to have their preferences about medical interventions indicated. And then there's three levels on the Iowa form comfort measures only, limited additional interventions, and full treatment. And a little bit more information about each of these options is on the Iowa Post form. 
There's a question about artificially administered nutrition, whether or not that's uh, preference. Um, and people will always be offered uh, food by mouth in, if they're able to take it. And then the form also clarifies who the medical decision maker was. So if the person had identified a healthcare agent, then that person would be the person working with the healthcare provider to make a post for somebody who's in the advanced stages of dementia. Because if they're in the advanced stages of dementia, they're not able to complete this themselves. However, if they've appointed a healthcare agent, that healthcare agent can work with the healthcare provider to do this. And then also, our post form asks for the rationale for this medical order. And so um, the people who are signing it can say, well, this is consistent with their advanced directives. We know that these were the preferences or other options. And then the healthcare provider signs it. And the patient, if the patient is can, but in most cases with advanced dementia, of course, they're not going to be able to sign. And so the healthcare agent would sign. In Iowa, if there's not a healthcare agent that's been designated, then there is an order of people who can sign on behalf of the person. Is post appropriate? Well, the authors listed on this page and others have said, you can ask yourself a question. If, would I be surprised if this patient died in the next year? And if you wouldn't be surprised if the person died in the next year, then post is appropriate. Let's go on with our case study. So John does have an advanced directive that he prepared before his dementia progressed. And in that advanced directive, he named his wife as his agent and his son as his alternate. So what is gained by adding a pulse? Maria wonders, now does this conversation with pulse, now do I, does that mean I don't have an advanced directive anymore? Do I replace it with a pulse? Do I need both? We're going to answer this very important question after first comparing and contrasting post and advanced directives. Um, this table comes from Bomba and colleagues and compares and contrasts. So posts are for people who are very seriously ill. You wouldn't be surprised if this person died in the next 12 months. Advanced directives are for all adults uh, of any health level. Um, Pulse talks about what the current care preferences are, what's appropriate now. Advanced directives talk about the future care preferences. The Pulse form is completed by the provider with discussions with either the patient or the patient's agent about what the patient's preferences were. On the other hand, an advanced directive can only be completed by the patient. The agent cannot complete uh, an advanced directive. The patient has to do it. So if the patient doesn't do it while they're cognitively able to do it, it's too late for an advanced directive. The post results in medical orders. And that means that all healthcare professions who come in contact with that person should be following the medical orders as expressed in that post form. Um, by contrast, the advanced directive results in advanced directive form, but that doesn't actually lead directly to medical orders. The proxy in the post paradigm can discuss, or, or the healthcare agent can discuss with the provider and um, inform the post. And as I said before, with the advanced directives, only the person can fill out an advanced directive for him or herself. A proxy can't complete that. 
And then with the polls, the provider's responsible for having it ready and having reading it and following it, and then also for updating it. So in a nursing home situation where our person, John, now is, the nursing homes need to have systems by which the POLST is regularly reviewed. And then there's a place to document that it's been reviewed and updated on the actual form. Um, so John and his family and his healthcare team all benefit if John would have both. It's important for him to continue the advanced directive where he has already named the agent and he's named the alternate and he may have already expressed other preferences regarding certain medical interventions. The advanced directive is important throughout John's disease uh, process. And then the pulse is particularly important when um, it wouldn't be surprising if he would die within a year. This is a schema that Jane and I have developed to kind of superimpose the fast stages of dementia with different kinds of advanced care planning. And so you see that throughout the fast stages of dementia, from when a person is completely without dementia to a very severe dementia, Discussions about the medical circumstances and options and goals of care and preferences are always appropriate. So that's throughout the seven stages. The patient, him or herself, will be involved with those discussions as long as he or she is able. But towards the last stages of dementia, that person will not be able to. And then the family will be involved. But it's so much easier on the family if they've been involved all along. Also, the second bar that's very long there is the current durable power of attorney for healthcare. Once that is made by a person before dementia, before or while the dementia is quite mild, that can stay in effect throughout the person's life. And so you're going to want to make sure that that durable power of attorney for healthcare, that that person who's designated as an agent is involved in all these discussions and the alternate two, and that person will be involved in decision making. It's the last two stages of dementia, primarily stage seven, but for some people part of stage six as well, where the pulse type physician order really comes in handy because that specifies what's the care that this person wants now and the beauty of the pulse system when it works is that the form stays with the person across settings. And many people in advanced dementia do end up having hospitalizations, and they're dealing with the emergency rooms, they're dealing with hospitals, they're dealing with the nursing homes, they may be dealing with hospice, they may be dealing with home health if they're still at home. There's a lot of people who get involved as a person becomes much more frail, and so these post orders can really help to clarify what this person wanted. Okay, so now that we're talking a little bit more about the nursing home situation, um, I just wanted to briefly go over the role of the healthcare professionals in terms of advanced care planning in the long-term care setting. This long-term care setting could be assisted living or another residential care setting. I usually use the term nursing home, but there are other settings. It's important that the setting learns the social history of the resident. That's going to be important and understand this person's uh, circle of support. Upon admission, advanced care planning needs to be broached. 
So of course the person will be asked whether or not they've been involved in advanced care planning, whether or not they have appointed an agent. And of course if the person already has, then it's much easier on the nursing home staff, right? Because now the nursing home staff will go through the process of updating these documents, but they won't be having to initiate them. If it's the first time that a person's made a durable power of an attorney or any other healthcare directive, there's, there's more pressure on the nursing home staff because they have to also introduce people to the whole concept, not just update. Um, you want to make sure that if your state has pulsed that people understand that that's available. It might not be appropriate right now in this stage, but that it's something that you might be talking about later. You could be planting the seeds for hospice. Again, we're not saying that hospice is appropriate right now, but as a nursing home facility, you want your families to understand the different kinds of resources that the nursing home is prepared to um, help connect the patient and the, the resident and the family with. Uh, nursing homes need to be inviting families to these quarterly care conferences. And at these quarterly care conferences, that's a perfect time to review advanced care planning and people's understandings of the resident's status and preferences. Um, we want to make sure that uh, families are kept apprised of the changing condition of the resident, but also that the staff know to pay attention to what the, what the family's reporting about changes in the resident as well. They're an important source of information. And there's a lot of effort that goes into trying to keep everybody on the same page. I wanted to just let you know that there are formal hospice guidelines for people who have dementia that indicate uh, the timing of when it, it's appropriate to enroll somebody in hospice if, if that's what the circle of care would like. And then I wanted to share with you results from this study by Givens and colleagues of 22 nursing homes in Boston, including 323 people with advanced dementia and their hospital transfers. They remind the reader that a lot of end-of-life care for people with dementia occurs in nursing home settings. And so that's where we want a special expertise in working with uh, dementia and advanced care planning. Um, we need to be reminded that if comfort is the main goal of care for people in advanced dementia, then hospitalization is usually inconsistent with comfort. And I put usually in italics because in some cases comfort cannot be achieved in the nursing home, but in many cases it can. Also if somebody is has dementia and they're very disoriented, the transfer to an emergency room, the transfer to a hospital can be very stressful. Uh, these researchers report that the majority of ER visits were related to feeding tube complications. And that's not something that we're used to informing families about as they consider whether or not a feeding tube is appropriate, is uh, that uh, there are these complications that sometimes can send a resident to the emergency room. And they report that the majority of hospitalizations were related to infections and that infections can often be handled fine in a nursing home setting. So. Um, that also goes back to the importance of a pulsed form and the advanced directives of being clear whether or not the person it's in the person's best interest to be transferred to a hospital and under and under what circumstances. Another study I wanted to just quickly talk about is by Jackson and colleagues. It was just published last year, 
and it reflects perspectives of families of nursing home residents about um, end-of-life issues. And what families reported that they valued was open communication, and they wanted continuity of providers. They also talked about wanting to be able to really put their trust in the nursing home. Um, and they appreciated when the staff prepared them for what comes next with the disease. And here's a quote from the Jackson article. Having detailed advanced directives in place also helped ensure adherence to the patient's wishes. So the whole uh, impulse for advanced care planning is making sure that we are doing all we can to help each person get the kind of care that is what they would want if they were able to ask for it themselves. So I want to thank you for your time and for your attention, and I want, you, I want to thank you for caring for persons with advanced dementia and also caring for their family members and for educating yourself so that you can be prepared to assist these families with advanced care planning. Thank you very much.